0: True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates.
1: The man hears a car slow down in the street near him. He continues walking, glancing over his shoulder briefly to see what the driver's problem might be. The small silver car glints in the light of the street lamps and the driver is almost comically large in the tiny vehicle. The man continues walking, but within seconds he hears the car door open and close. The heavy footsteps of the driver rush up behind him. His pursuer begins to shout. He screams things that don't make sense, and the victim doesn't have time to react when the axe is raised and brought back down, Again and again. This is True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to episode 106, the serial crimes of Pindile Chongwana. Hey, True Crime South Africa listeners. I'd like to tell you about a brand new South African podcast called Your Mom with Skulk. I love how the podcast landscape in South Africa is expanding, and I'm really pleased to be a part of that. The content in True Crime South Africa's episodes can be a little bit heavy though, so I think it makes complete sense to balance that out with some light-hearted fun. Skulk Bezadenhout is genuinely one of my favourite comedians and personalities, and now, he has his own podcast. Hello there, all you
0: crime junkies, you sickos. It's Skulk Beside, no dear. I'm sorry to interrupt the murder or the robbery or whatever heinous crime Nicole is telling you about. But I just wanted to tell you quickly about a new podcast that I'm hosting called Your Mom with Skulk. Hello, Meansa, and welcome to Your Mom with Sculpt, a brand new podcast by Telltale Media, hosted by me, Sculpt side Note. Now, on this show, we're going to journey deep into the lives of really lucky people. Some of them are my friends, some of them I wish were my friends. But I don't want to speak to these exceptional people, these celebrities directly. I mean, you look at Mensa. I think we are all so tired of listening to celebrities. Everyone and their mother, excuse the pun, has a podcast where they interview celebrities. So we're not going to speak to the celebrities directly, but rather about the celebrities through the people that know them better than anyone, which is, of course, their mothers. I am sitting here, Mensa, in the house, of Tanigale Goliath. I am sitting in the house of Jack Parrow, Bertis Bason, Simone Pretuirius, and our ongelooflike come out, Tinkie. Tanky. Nah? La Le- Oh, sorry, my bad. No, I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> the woman of the hour for me is the Queen. The Queen.
1: Because my favorite words are fing fing fing
0: I can't wait for the journalist to hear that. This is who I want to speak to. Their mothers. Your favorite word is but you don't like tattoos. is Subscribe on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or check us out at telltale.media forward slash skulk. I mean, it would be a crime not to Anyway, back to you, Nicole. Donkey.
1: I highly recommend you go follow Skulk's podcast right now on whatever platform you're listening on. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to thank those listeners who've supported the show through Patreon or PayPal recently. A huge thank you goes out to CL Lombard, Moreau Amari, Michelle West, Rahil Rampasad, Tashian Naveen. Mariki Sneiman, Leon van Skalkwijk, and Tyler Hack for your support on Patreon. Thank you so much for your support everyone, it really does make a huge difference. If you'd like to get an exclusive episode every month, as well as an ad-free version of every week's episode, check out the link to Patreon in the show notes and sign up for a minimum of $1, which is about the same price as a loaf of bread right now. You can also support the show by supporting our sponsors, including King Online and Wallpaper Online, by using the discount code TCSA10 or True Crime, respectively, when purchasing on their websites, and you'll get a 10% discount too. Or you can support me as an individual creator by purchasing my book Samurai Sword Murder in hard copy, ebook, or audiobook formats, as well as the audiobook I narrated for Yana Marks. Of the Krugersdorp cult murders. Non-financial support is just as valuable, so please share and invite your friends to listen. Today's case is a serial murder, and although so often the cases of serial murder I discuss don't always line up with what we're told is typical behaviour for these kinds of offenders, for the most part this one does. One very important part of this case though would make it quite different. Most serial murderers do not have diagnosable mental health conditions. Personality disorders, yes, but not often conditions that could in any way be construed as having directly caused their crimes. So often when we hear about the horrendous actions of serial murderers, we think, well, there must be something seriously wrong with that person. But I think what today's case will show Is that the very nature of serial murder, the repeated crimes, the hunting, the getting away with it, is actually not something that can often be accomplished by an extremely disordered mind. But by the same token, some part of this offender's mind was disordered, but very clearly another knew exactly what he was doing. In researching today's case, I used a chapter of Dr. Gerard Labaskagny's book, Profiler Diaries, as well as several media articles. So let's get into the serial crimes of Pendile Chongwana.
0: The following episode may contain sensitive material, including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counselling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes.
1: When I cover serial crimes, I often swing between discussing the crimes first and revealing the perpetrator at the end so that the victims get as much airtime as possible or telling the story in the order it happened. I do tend to think that telling it as it happened has more value though. The whole talk about the crimes and then reveal the perp at the end style is pretty much exactly how it happens in real life. The crimes happen, we hear about them in the media, and then we hear about the perpetrator after he or she is arrested. But I tend to think that the other way around has more value. When we hear the story told as the perpetrator and victims are actually living it, we get more of the nuance we understand additional details that played into the crimes and the eventual investigation. So I've chosen to introduce the perpetrator from the beginning here, and let's see how that plays out. Pindile Joseph Chongwana was born in 1979. He grew up in what was by all accounts a relatively normal home. His mother worked as a law lecturer and his father was a diplomat. Pindile was raised in Limpopo, and he attended Settlers Agricultural High School. While at high school, Pindile was identified as a talented rugby player, as his father had been, and in 1996, he started playing rugby for the South African Barbarians. After matriculating in 1997, Pindile enrolled at Tshwane University of Technology to study sport management and marketing. While there, he was picked up by the Blue Bulls rugby union and became one of the first players of colour to play for the team. Between 1998 and 2001, when he graduated from university, Pindile played 28 games for the Blue Bulls and even played for the South African under-21 side. He was clearly talented and intelligent But his father would later say that even then, Pindile's mental health often affected his performance, both on and off the field. His family explained how he had difficulty maintaining relationships and holding down jobs. In 2005, he moved to Durban to live with his mother, who it seems at this stage was separated from his father. Pendile lived in a flatlet at the back of the property. He had his privacy, but his mother was there to watch his behaviour, which cycled through highs and lows. And eventually, in 2009, when Pendile was 30 years old, after a particularly disturbing patch of behaviour, he was admitted to a psychiatric facility and diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder, bipolar type. Schizoaffective disorder is a mental health disorder that is marked by a combination of schizophrenia symptoms, such as hallucinations or delusions, and mood disorder symptoms, such as depression or mania. The two types of schizoaffective disorder, both of which include some symptoms of schizophrenia, are bipolar type, which includes episodes of mania and sometimes major depression, and depressive type, which includes only major depressive episodes. Pendillo was found to be living with the bipolar type of schizoaffective disorder, which means he would experience symptoms of the schizoaffective portion of the disorder, including hallucinations and delusions, but also he would cycle through depressive episodes and manic episodes. The age at which pendelia was diagnosed is quite common, and symptoms often start in late teens, and then if diagnosis is made it's often in the mid to late twenties. The symptoms of the disorder can be managed through medication and learned coping mechanisms, but very often those living with the disorder, as is common with bipolar disorder too, will stay on the medication for some time, and then convince themselves that they were able to manage without it. This seems to have happened with Pendile too, and he really didn't seem to stay on his medication for very long. In July 2010, Pendile was readmitted to a psychiatric facility. The notes from that admission indicate that he was experiencing persecutory delusions, including beliefs that his family were trying to kill him. This is sadly quite common for people living with this disorder. Because many people like Pendele struggle to operate independently, they will often need to live with family, and this can become difficult for all. The persecutory delusions that sometimes accompany the disorder will often be focused on those closest to them. During this July 2010 admission, he was being transferred to another facility when he broke out of the ambulance and disappeared. He was next seen in Cape Town when he arrived on the doorstep of family members there. The following month he was admitted to Falkenberg, where he stayed for a month. Psychiatrists there also confirmed the 2009 diagnosis of schizoaffective disorder. He was discharged in September and returned to Durban. Another reason that I think it's important to relay this case in order of how it happened is because we start to see the build-up to Pendile's eventual crimes, and we can see how what was happening in his life fits in with what we expect from serial murderer behaviour. We often see serial murderers beginning their crimes in their late 20s to early 30s. There's usually some sort of criminal build-up, and although we'll soon see that start to manifest with pendile i also think that with him there must be some bits missing because the most serious violence seemed to start too suddenly we also know that serial murderers are often triggered by stressful events in their lives and i think pendile struggles with his mental health and multiple admissions to mental health facilities must have become extremely stressful for both him and his family. And in late November 2010, everything seemed to come to a head for Pendile. At 8.30pm on the 26th of November 2010, Meli Tolo was walking on Stirling Road in Yellowwood Park when a silver vehicle pulled up alongside him. Meli later described the man as being well-built, like a wrestler or a rugby player. The man called out, asking if he knew a girl called Zama. Meli shook his head, no he didn't, and he continued walking. But the driver wasn't finished with him. The large man got out of his car and chased Meli down with a baton in his hand. When he tackled him down to the ground he proceeded to savagely beat the young man. As Melly drifted in and out of consciousness, he heard someone screaming. A resident of a nearby house had witnessed the attack and shouted at the perpetrator. The man fled, but the witness was able to take down a description of the vehicle and the full registration number. Melly's case was reported to police the registration number of the vehicle was handed over and it was traced back to a silver Chevrolet Avio registered to one Mrs Letlaka, who lived in Yellowwood Park, Durban. Police visited the house and were able to determine that Mrs Letlaka had a 30-year-old son who matched the description of the man who'd beaten Meli Tolo. He wasn't home, though, the officer was told, and so... They left. They never returned. Shortly afterwards, Melly saw his attacker at the local supermarket. He called police and told them that the man was in the area, but no action was taken. Two days after Melly was attacked, a 25-year-old woman was walking near Yellowwood Park. She'd been visiting her sister and was heading to the shop before going back home. A man in a small silver vehicle pulled up next to her and offered her a lift. The woman did not recognise the man, but he behaved as though he knew her and continued to insist that he'd give her a lift home, so eventually she relented and got into his car. It wasn't long before she realised that her initial instinct had been spot on. The driver, a well-built and imposing-looking man, drove straight past her apartment block. She started to question him and he silenced her. He took her hand and placed it on his groin, telling the woman that she was about to find out what it would be like to be with a causer man. The terrified young woman was driven to a house in Yellowwood Park. The man pulled into a garage and led her into a flatlet at the back of a property. This was the beginning of three days of horror for the victim. Over the days that followed, she was repeatedly raped. Her attacker kept all the doors locked, and there were burglar bars on the windows. The man cycled between being incredibly gentle with her and speaking to her kindly, and then raging and punching walls, telling her she was going to die. On the second day of her captivity, The man took her to his car, saying he was going to get his gun so he could kill her. The young woman saw her chance and tried to escape, but she was no match for the fit and strong man, and he quickly caught up with her, dragging her back into his bedroom and continued to assault her. The woman recalled how during the time that she was being held, the man often accused her of having other boyfriends, and told her that she was lying when she said she had no boyfriends. On the third day of her captivity, the man said he was going to the main house for a moment, and he locked her in as he left. She took the opportunity to rifle through his belongings, and found his ID book and a receipt from a pizza delivery service, which had his address on it. The woman pocketed the items. When the man returned, she cleverly told him that if he was going to be her boyfriend, she was going to need to fetch her belongings from her home, and would he please take her there so she could do so? He agreed. The young woman was eventually able to escape when the rapist pulled up to her apartment building and waited for her, as he thought she was going inside to collect her belongings so that she could go and live with him permanently. Instead, She calmly walked through the front door of the apartment, quickly told the security not to let the man in, and ran upstairs. She encountered a friend who she relayed her horror story to, and the friend stood in the foyer of the building and took down the registration number and make of the vehicle idling outside. At some point, the perpetrator realised the victim was not coming back, and left. The victim was taken to police, a rape kit was taken and her injuries were documented. She handed over the identity documents and the address of the man who'd kidnapped and raped her for three days. The only way she could have done any more to solve her own case would have been if she'd delivered the perpetrator to the police station gift wrapped and put handcuffs on him herself. But as you may already suspect, Her incredible efforts were simply not enough. Police did go to the address identified in early December 2010, and one Mrs Letlaka answered the door. They showed her the identity book, and asked her if the man who owned it lived at that address. The woman acknowledged that the ID book belonged to her son, Pindile Chongwana. But he wasn't there. He was in the hospital, she said officers explained to the woman that her son had been implicated in a kidnapping and rape case and they needed to speak with him urgently. Mrs Letlaka promised that as soon as she saw him she would let them know. The officers left and never followed up. There are so many should-haves and could-haves in this case. The most important ones are undoubtedly directed at the officers here. I really don't understand why Pendile being hospitalized would have stopped them from questioning him, or at the very least, following up with the psychiatric facility he was being treated at so that they could let them know when it was possible to speak with him. In December 2010, Pendile had been hospitalized for his mental health condition once again. His treatment notes indicate that he was hospitalized after experiencing severe persecutory delusions, hallucinations and difficulty sleeping. After the police visited, Mrs Letlaka did go to the hospital and along with his psychiatrist, spoke to her son about the accusations against him. Pendile told his mother and the doctor that it was all a big misunderstanding. His girlfriend had been staying with him for a few days, he'd claimed, and he didn't really trust her, so whenever he left the flat, he'd lock her in the bedroom so that she couldn't steal from him. Mrs Letlaka would later say that the psychiatrist had told her in front of Pendile that this made sense because of his persecutory delusions. Pendile was discharged from the hospital stay in January 2011. He did not report to the police station, no one advised police that he'd been discharged, and most importantly, police never followed up. In January and February 2011, Pindile attended two outpatient appointments with his psychiatrist. He'd been given medication, but he was not taking it. Then, he stopped attending his appointments. On the 20th of March 2011, Tembinkosi Kosi Sebekulu had travelled to Impangeni from where he lived in Durban to attend his brother's funeral. The next day was a public holiday and he'd planned to stay on and return the day after, but an urgent call from his boss changed his plans. His boss asked if he could work the public holiday and, needing the money, Tembi Nkosi had agreed and, directly after the funeral, headed back home. At 9.15pm he phoned his girlfriend Mabel who he lived with to say that he was at the petrol station in Montclair which was quite close to their home and asked if she needed anything at the house. She asked him to bring home a loaf of bread and and Corsi told Mabel he'd be home soon. This would be the last time she ever spoke with him. CCTV would confirm that Tembi and Coursi had purchased the loaf of bread, and then headed off on foot in the direction of his home. Twenty-five minutes later, a witness driving along Kenyon Harden Road in Westwood Gardens saw what he thought was a fight on the side of the road. He saw two men, one very large in build, and standing in the road with something in his hand. The other was on the pavement and soon collapsed to the ground. As the driver passed, he realised that the larger man was holding an axe, and he was hacking at the man lying on the ground. The witness quickly drove home, phoned police, and then drove back to the scene. By the time he arrived, another man was there who'd also witnessed the attack. This man had called police from his cell phone, and watched the perpetrator drive away in a silver car. He'd then gotten out of his vehicle to see if he could help the victim, but soon realised that the man was far beyond help. The gruesome scene that awaited both these witnesses would likely stay with them for a very long time. The victim had been brutally attacked with an axe. His head had been severed from his body and lay separately in the street. In the bushes behind the body lay a squashed loaf of bread. Police arrived at the scene by 10pm. As an officer approached the body, a cell phone in the man's pocket began to ring. The officer reached in and answered. The woman on the other side identified herself as Mabel and said she was waiting for her boyfriend, Tembin Korsi, to arrive home. The officer realised that this was likely the body of Timby Korsi, but perhaps rather than break the news to the woman over the phone, he told her that they were with her boyfriend and would bring him home shortly. Mabel was unconvinced though, and 15 minutes later she called again. Another officer answered, and this one told her that her boyfriend was sleeping and they would bring him home when he woke up. I cannot fathom why the officer would think this was a good idea. And honestly, there was no way Mabel was ever going to believe that. She put down the phone and immediately asked her employer to take her to the police station. She was eventually directed to the scene of the crime and discovered that Tembi and Corsi had been murdered. In Dr Gerard Labaskakny's book, he relates that this scene shows how under-resourced South African police officers are. Despite the serious nature of the murder and how extensive the investigation should have been, the crime scene notes show that the officers arrived at 10pm, and by 11pm, just one hour later, they'd cleared the scene and removed Tembi Nkosi's body. All that remained was a large pool of blood where the man had fallen. The witnesses provided their accounts to police, and a small silver car was mentioned. The very next day, another incident would take place in Umlazi, 13 kilometres from where Tembun Kosi Sevakulu was murdered. This incident would not be reported to police, but it would be discussed in the media. At 20 minutes before 10 p.m., Siander Kumalo was walking home after visiting his father. A small silver vehicle pulled up next to him and a well-built man got out. Siander heard the man's footsteps behind him and as they increased in speed, he began to feel uncomfortable and moved off the pavement and into the road. The man mirrored his movements though and soon he was upon him. "'grabbing him by his shirt and shouting at him in isiZulu, Sianda managed to pull himself out of the grasp of the man, "'but as he was running, he was struck in the back by an axe the man had thrown. "'He was not injured in the attack, "'and this is likely the reason he didn't report it to police. "'Somehow, though, the press did get wind of this, "'but it would take a few days for it to appear as a story, "'and during that time, quite a bit would happen.' On the 22nd of March 2011, Kangalani Mduli was walking home at 10.30pm when a silver car parked beside him. The driver got out and approached him. He carried a plastic bag with something inside. Although Kangalani had never seen the man in his life, the man seemed to think he knew him, and immediately started screaming at him that he'd infected his daughter with AIDS. Kangalani knew very well he'd done no such thing, but the man gave him no opportunity to explain. He pulled an axe out of the plastic bag, and swung it at Kangalani. The man ducked, and the weapon hit him in the rib cage. He was able to escape and ran to the closest police station to report the incident. That same night, at twenty minutes before midnight. A man walking in the street in Lamontville came across a decapitated body in a traffic circle. The victim was dressed in a bright yellow shirt, dark blue pants, and was wearing only one shoe. The victim's head was not at the scene. The victim did not have any identification on him, so the police officer who attended immediately started going door-to-door in the surrounding houses asking if anyone wearing the clothing the victim had on lived at one of those houses. This, at least, was an example of excellent police work, because the young officer's efforts bore fruit very quickly when he came across a woman who said her boyfriend was wearing such clothing when he'd gone to work at a nearby KFC outlet. His name was Paulus and he would have been walking home from work at the very time the victim was found. Despite the silver lining on the horizon of what thus far had been some pretty poor examples of police work, an equally horrific example would follow directly after, when a call came in to say that a human head had been discovered in a nearby dustbin. Rather than taking the remains to the mortuary, where they could be identified and viewed by loved ones in controlled conditions, Paula's Llongwa's girlfriend was picked up by police, taken to the dustbin, and asked to identify her boyfriend's decapitated head while it lay inside the dustbin. I just really do not know sometimes. With the two cases of decapitation happening within 24 hours, and this being a relatively rare type of injury, as well as the use of an axe in both crimes, it soon became clear to experienced officers that this was likely the work of the same offender. Despite the provincial SAPS head office being hesitant to share the belief, Lieutenant Colonel Jason McGray put together a task team on the 23rd of March, to investigate the two murders that they, at this point, were aware of. The attack on Kangalani Mduli had also come to light, and that was added to the task team's cases as well. To start off the investigation, the task team walked the neighbourhood where Paulus's body had been found. They managed to identify two sets of witnesses, Who'd been too afraid to come forward the day before, both had seen a man hacking away at Paulus's body, and then walking away with something in a plastic bag. One witness had been afraid that the murder was muti-related, and didn't want to get involved. The witnesses provided vital details about the attacker and the vehicle he was in, all of which matched up with both the murder of Tembi and Korsi, two nights prior, and the attack on Kangalani Mduli. This only served to strengthen the task team's belief that they were definitely looking for the same perpetrator in all three cases. Before anything further could happen though, another attack was reported. At 3am that morning, a homeowner had heard someone shouting in the street outside his house. When he looked outside, he saw one man chase another down the street. He watched as the man chasing caught up with the one he was pursuing and knock him to the ground. He immediately began to hit him with something he had in his hand. The homeowner shouted out the window to scare the man off, but it had no effect. By this point, he could hear what he believed was steel hitting bone. The man ran to his front door but couldn't find his house keys. He shouted from the front door and the perpetrator stopped and fled in his vehicle. The homeowner called 10111 and then ran to the victim. The man had been brutally attacked and was pronounced dead at the scene. He would later be identified as Simon Ngiri. As soon as the task team received news about this new case, they set up a meeting with the investigative psychology section of the SAPS. Dr Gerard Labaskagny headed up the section at that time and recalled looking at the dockets and visiting the scenes and agreeing that this was most definitely the work of the same man. The geography, the weapon used, manner of death, victimology – and descriptions of the perpetrator and vehicle all matched up. At this point, the task team began looking for other similar cases, which may be able to help them find their perpetrator. McGray found the case of the attack on Sian Kumalo, which had been reported in the media. The man had not reported his case, but McGray tracked him down and got him to open the case. On the 27th of March 2011, local newspapers ran articles about the grisly murders. While the task team was dismayed to see that a lot of their witnesses had been interviewed by the media and far too much information was included in the articles, which they would have preferred to have kept under wraps, there would be one positive outcome from the press coverage, and it would lead the task team right to their suspect. The day after the articles were run, Meli Tolo's sister contacted police and told them about the attack on her brother in 2010. McGray looked up the docket and discovered that not only had the incident been very similar, despite a baton being used rather than an axe, the description of the offender and the car were very close, but Tolo's docket also held vital evidence a registration number of a vehicle, a small silver car, along with an address and a name, Pindile Shongwana. Again, this case presents such stark contrasts between excellent hard-working police officers and the really atrocious policing that had occurred early on. The task team had been working this case almost non-stop for days by this point, working overtime that they were not being paid for, because they knew that the murderer was going to kill again. It was just a matter of time. So when this piece of information presented itself, they did not hesitate to act. Task team members first approached the neighbours to Pendile Chongwana's house and confirmed that a man matching his description lived there. They then assembled more than 20 members from across the province and kept the house under surveillance. Late that afternoon, they decided to approach. Two members went around the back of the house, and the rest approached from the front. As the officers in the front began to knock and call out, a hulking man emerged from the flatlet behind the house and walked straight into the two officers who chosen to cover the back. A tense moment passed as the three looked at each other, but there would be no physical confrontation. Pendile Chongwana identified himself, and the officers were able to place him under arrest without incident. Unfortunately, the standard handcuffs they had with them didn't fit around the muscular man's large arms, so leg irons were used as handcuffs instead. The officers knocked on the door to the main house, and Pindile's mother came outside. After hearing that her son was being taken into custody, the woman agreed to let officers search her property. She asked only that they start in her bedroom, because she said she needed to get some sleep before she went to work the next day. The silver Chevrolet Avio, That had been identified by so many witnesses was not on the property that day. It had been involved in an accident and would be recovered from a panel beating shop by police. A rental car that was on the premises was seized. Over several days forensics teams seized a significant amount of physical evidence from the home. This included a stash of items found inside an unused dog kennel in the backyard. Pindile's mother confirmed that there had been no dog on the premises since November 2010. Inside the kennel, police found a bag containing blood-stained clothing, an axe, and a pair of running shoes. One shoe had a metal toe cap, while the other was missing its toe cap. Also in the kennel was a bag of rotten meat. Which would never be explained. Scent dogs were brought in and they indicated in the ensuite bathroom of Pendiles flat. When forensics teams scoured this area, they found blood on the floor tiles in front of the shower, on the step going into the shower, inside the shower, on the taps in the wash basin, and under the basin. On the floor mat in the bathroom, two separate DNA profiles were found in human blood. One was of an unknown female, and the other an unknown male. The blood had all been cleaned up, but was identified by first spraying blue star, which reacts to the iron in the blood, and then using a product called Hexagon OBTI, which indicates whether the substance is human blood or not. Inside the vehicle which Pendile had been using, police found blood belonging to Paula Slungwa and Simon Ngedi. On the 30th of March, Pendile appeared in court for the first time. During this hearing, the investigating officer was approached by a prosecutor, who told him that he had another docket, which Pendile was the suspect in. This would turn out to be the rape and abduction docket for the 25-year-old female victim from November 2010, the one where the victim had literally handed the perpetrator to police on a silver platter, and yet the same man had gone on to commit multiple murders and attempt to kill others too. The rape and abduction charges were added to Pendile's charge sheet, after the DNA from the rape kit was compared to his DNA and was found to be a perfect match. On the 1st of April 2011, with Pendile still in custody, a man walking his dog near railway lines came across the decapitated body of a male victim. The investigating officer must have had a brief moment of panic, as to whether he actually had the right man in custody if murders were still being committed, but it would soon be determined from the stage of decomposition that the victim had been killed during the same period that the other victims were. The victim was also found less than 500 metres as the crow flies from Pendile's home. Thankfully, one of the officers that attended the search of Pendile's home also attended this murder scene, and when he saw a random metal toe cap lying near the body, he had forensics officers bag it as evidence. A metals expert attached to the SAPS forensics team would later compare this toe cap to the one on the running shoe found in the kennel at Pendile's house, and confirmed that they matched. Sadly, the victim from this crime was never identified On the 6th of April an identity parade was held in an attempt to have the various witnesses from the murders as well as the surviving victims see if they could identify anyone from a lineup who matched the person they'd seen due to Pendle's large stature to make the lineup fair the team had to carefully source men from the special task force as well as a few larger metro cops. The first witness was able to easily identify Pendile as the man he'd seen, and the minute he did so, Pendile collapsed and appeared to have an attack of some kind. Paramedics were called, but couldn't find anything wrong with the man, but he continued to claim to be ill until the ID parade was called off. Pendile agreed to be interviewed by the investigating officer, Mick with the members of the IPS and his lawyer present. Out of 77 questions asked in the interview, he refused to answer 34. Pendile Shongwana's trial was set to begin in 2012, but before it could, due to his mental health concerns, he needed to undergo a psychiatric assessment. The assessment would determine that despite his diagnoses, he was fit to stand trial. The assessment, however, could not determine whether he was criminally responsible for his actions at the time of the alleged crimes, so this would be a matter that would have to play out in court. As expected, Pindile's defense was going to be mental health related. He pleaded not guilty saying that he had no recollection of the crimes he was accused of, and further, if the prosecution was able to prove that he had indeed committed the crimes, then he must have been in a state of pathological criminal incapacity when he committed them. The trial began in November 2012 and ran for a few days until Pendile's defense attorney suddenly took ill, and the trial was only able to restart in April 2013. The state presented all of their physical evidence, as well as similar fact evidence. The defence did not dispute much of the physical evidence, because, of course, the basis of their defence was no recollection of the crimes. The female rape survivor bravely testified about her ordeal and the harsh cross-examination from the defence, who tried to rip apart every part of her story. The young woman, however, stood firm, and the judge would find that she was credible and an excellent witness, especially considering the deep trauma she'd endured. The state rested their case on the 22nd of April 2013, and it was then the defense's turn to present their case. In line with their claimed defense strategy, they presented an expert psychiatrist who claimed that, due to the delusions Pendile experienced around his family wanting to kill him, he may not remember his crimes after the expert witness testified, and before he could be cross-examined, the defence attorney once again required that the court halt proceedings as he had started another case in another court and failed to advise the court. That he wouldn't be attending Pendile's trial on certain days. After the judge put out an order for the defense attorney to be located and his availability ascertained, the trial was eventually able to restart in january twenty fourteen. The defense's expert psychiatrist was then to be cross examined by the state, and when asked why, if he believed Pendile's delusions had contributed to his crimes, would the young man have killed strangers instead of his own family, who he allegedly believed were out to get him, the expert could not explain why this would be. When asked by the judge whether he believed Pendile in his current condition would be a danger to society, the psychiatrist had to concede that he would be. The defence rested on the 23rd of January 2014. At this point, the trial should have moved to judgment stage. But considering the evidence led by the defense's psychiatrist, the state instead requested that they be allowed to reopen their case, so that they could call psychiatrists who'd assessed Pendile. The judge allowed it, and the state's witnesses all disagreed with the defense's psychiatrist, in that, in their opinions, none of the symptoms of Pendile's mental health disorders would cause memory loss, and they would only agree that his mental health conditions had played any role if he'd acted on the delusions he had about his family, and it made no sense that he would act against strangers. Evidence was also led around Pendile's specific actions – and comments which clearly indicated that he did have recollections of the crimes. The fact that he'd been able to dispose of evidence, clean up blood in his flat, hide items in the kennel at home, and that when he was confronted with the rape and abduction allegations, he told his psychiatrist it was a misunderstanding and he'd fabricated a story about the victim being his girlfriend and only locking her up in the bedroom for a few minutes, all clearly indicated that he had acted with intent. When judgment in the case was eventually passed down, Pindilesh Mungwana was found guilty on all charges against him. The judge found that there had been no nexus between his mental illness and his crimes, and if anything, he seemed to purposefully attempt to appear delusional or psychotic during his crimes in order to seemingly create this narrative. The way he'd approached many of the victims, claiming to know them and accusing one man of infecting his daughter, who didn't exist, with AIDS, Seemed to have been done on purpose. At some points, many wondered had Pindile Shongwana, while in treatment, been given the impression or had a conversation with someone that had given him the idea that he might be able to get away with murder because of his diagnoses? If this had been the case, his attempts had failed because the judge saw no link and did not agree with his defence. After sentencing, while signing paperwork, Pindile looked over at Detective McGray and smiled broadly, congratulating the officer on having caught himself a, quote, Big Fish. Pindile's sentencing hearing would only begin in December 2014, a full four years after he'd first started committing his crimes. During the hearing, his father testified about his significant history of mental health difficulties. The man apologised to the victim's families for what his son had done, saying that he'd done everything he could to try and get his son help, but he'd never foreseen this outcome. In passing down sentence, the judge lambasted the officers who'd worked on the first two crimes Pendile had committed. In November 2010, he said that it was very clear that there had been deep failings in the system which had allowed the man to stay on the streets beyond December 2010 and perhaps even empowered him to commit the crimes he did. The judge sentenced Pendile Shongwana to five life sentences for his crimes. A full year after he was sentenced, the DNA from the unknown male profile found in Pendile's bathroom was linked to a murdered security guard in Bayview, very close to Pendile's home and hunting ground. The security guard was killed in a very similar way to the other victims, but because the man had already been handed down five life sentences, he would not be charged with this case. This case will be important case law for future cases in which defendants claim that their criminal actions were impacted by their mental health, especially where there are relatively serious diagnosed mental health disorders in question. And I think it's really very interesting to consider, especially for those that believe that mental health issues are a so-called get-out-of-jail-free card. I think it's also an important point to keep in mind in terms of mental health advocacy as so often people living with mental health disorders where psychosis hallucinations and delusions are involved are feared by the communities they live in and cases like this can perpetuate that the truth is that people living with mental health disorders are far more likely to harm themselves, or in fact become victims, than they are to harm anyone else. While it is sad that a young man had to live with such debilitating mental health difficulties, it is even more tragic that he would attempt to use those mental health disorders as a way out when his actions had been nothing more than selfish and something he wanted to do it is far more likely that for Shongwana, the murders became about power and control. The Blue Bulls rugby team management confirmed that in 2010, he had contacted them and said he wanted to make a comeback in his rugby career. They'd agreed to give him a chance, but they'd never heard from him again. Although we'll never know for sure, Perhaps Pindile found himself in his early thirties, finding it difficult to hold down a job, still living with his mother, and harkened back to the days when his name made headlines. Perhaps he'd realised that he simply didn't have it in him to recapture his former glory days on the rugby field, and instead decided to allow himself to slip into a darker obsession one which once again would make him the so-called big fish as he'd referred to himself. I will admit that I always find it difficult to understand how many criminals feel that any attention is good attention no matter how they get it, but we do seem to see that time and again. When met with a point in their lives where they may have to make a great effort to get back on track or to meet the expectations of their parents or family members. Some people seem to think that murder, and the more cold blooded and horrific, the better in their minds, is an equal, if opposite, solution to their problems. Again, not something you or I or most other people will probably ever understand, and perhaps. We should be grateful we don't. I can't help but think about the absolute horror involved in the way the victims in this case died. How afraid they must have been. This hulking man appearing out of nowhere in the dark, wielding an axe. It's the stuff of absolute nightmares for most of us. Something we're sure only happens in horror movies. But for each of, the, of this offender's victims, it became their final reality. I've spoken before about the weird little things that give me a lump in my throat when I research cases, the things that make my heart ache for the very humanity that was lost in a moment of violence. In this case, it was Tembin Korsi Sebekulu's loaf of bread. Here this man was performing the most ordinary of tasks, buying a loaf of bread on his way home to his girlfriend. As he walked, bread in hand, he likely thought about seeing Mabel. Maybe he spent some time thinking about work the next day. That loaf of bread would likely have prepared his packed lunch the following morning, but that was not to be. Because just minutes after it was purchased, it would lie, squashed and discarded in the grass. A strange reminder of all the human experience that had been lost in that place, in that single moment in time. Senseless, pointless and inexcusable. Tambien Nkosi Sebekulu, Paulus Llongwa, Simon Ngiri, and the unidentified male victim. Rest gently. Thank you for listening to episode 106, The Serial Crimes of Pendile Shongwana. If you'd like to hear more victim-focused true crime content, please subscribe to True Crime South Africa on Spotify or the platform you're using to listen right now. If you're looking for something still related to real-life stories, but often with a more positive slant, you can check out my new podcast series, I Live Through This. You can follow both podcasts on social media, we're on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. I'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, thank you for your support and I'll chat to you soon.